from our New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, before we jump into uh, today's topic, which is which is a pretty good one, I gotta say. Um, you know, I know you didn't watch the finale of Game of Thrones. That's fine. Oh. I basically just drank good wine while I wallowed in the misery of uh, with my friends of how terrible it was. Um, <laughs> I feel like I, so, I feel like a know. good a good I told you so is appropriate here because I feel like that was my take yeah. like two weeks ago. Yeah, I know. I did drink a really good rosé, though. Like oh, nice. A really good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inman, um, you know, she makes a bunch of – they make a bunch of, like, single vineyard rosés, which were really, oh, really cool. good. Like, you know, really good. I was just It's just a bummer because, um, you know, they're – you can only really get them through. The, they sent them to us, which is nice. Thank you so much, uh, Inman Family Winery, for sending us delicious rosé. But unfortunately, you can really only buy them through the winery's website. Uh, gotcha. Which is kind of a bummer. I wish you'd make more, but then again, um, I guess who, why make more when you're making single vineyard rosé? But it was really tasty, and we were having a debate in the office uh, about you know what you know what makes if like if you know single varietal like single vineyard like Pinot Noir based rosé is kind of the way to go because this year uh, on the top twenty five list, which we're going to talk about in a few episodes, uh, but you know we've we've had we've had quite a few really good. Uh, Pinot Noir, Rosés of Pinot Noir, which has been pretty, pretty awesome. I did notice that when I took a look at the list. I was, I was surprised to see how many uh, Pinot Noir Rosés were there because um, my experience with them has been, I would say, mixed at best in terms of uh, quality, in part because I think, you know, a lot of what was on the market at one point was basically Sanye Rosé. So in other words, uh, Rosé where the, the wine is really a byproduct of people making Pinot Noir as a red wine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and a lot of Oregon producers kind of like being like, oh, cool, we can take this stuff that we bled off to like darken and concentrate our Pinot Noir um, and sell it for 20 bucks. That's awesome. We were just going to pour it down the drain. Um, yeah. And a lot of that stuff sucks. Um, but I do think there's something, I mean, Pinot Noir is a beautiful variety and, and, and I don't doubt that when made intentionally for rosé, it can make great wines. I just, a lot mm. of the stuff I tasted initially was definitely not intended to be rosé at the outset. Terrible. And, and you know, honestly, that's, I, I agree with you, but I'm telling you, man, Kathleen Inman is making some dope rosé. Well, you know, uh, Adam, I will be, I will be in your presence soon. And, uh, maybe you can save one bottle for me to taste that and some, uh, final. Okay. Sweets, actually, uh, okay. Actually there, I'm looking, there is one bottle on the shelf still. I will, <laughs> I will make sure Keith doesn't drink it. Uh, that's, um, that sounds like a hard task. You might have to take it home. No, he won't drink it. Oh, okay. Okay. But well, he Tim, will if he listens Tim, to this podcast. Just Tim might Tim will. Oh Tim's totally listen to it. Gonna drink it. <laughs> Tim's like, oh, I'm going to hate drink this wine. Uh, um, excellent. Kidding, hey, Tim. so I have a I have a thing to tell you about, which I think is kind of yeah. interesting because I, I figure if you'll appreciate this. So I I, I took on a, a little project of my own at home the other day, which is I decided to make my own vermouth because I feel like we've been talking a lot about um, – cocktails and, and spirits and, and you know, talking to some producers. And I was like, you know, I've been thinking about doing this for a while. And I bet you, you know, I, like you, end up with a lot of sort of unfinished bottles of wine. And I was like, what can I do with this besides cook with it? Because, you know, it's late spring, early summer. I don't really want red wine braised anything this time of year. And so I was like, I'm going to try and make vermouth. Um, it was, a, so far, batch one is a, you know, it's a qualified success, I have to say. I think, you know, I, I got a lot of uh, fresh herbs out of my garden and and some spices and, you know, sort of did my best to make something that's, you know, vermouth-like. It, it isn't, sadly, I, I wanted it to be a little denser. It's kind of still it's still kind of just red wine consistency, but I didn't really want to thicken it too much. And so, you know, it doesn't have that kind of viscous quality that sometimes I like in vermouth, but, but you know, it's, it's pretty tasty out over ice with some sparkling water, uh, sparkling but water. Doesn't or... like, 
doesn't the vermouth – I mean because – so, you know, wine starts to turn to vinegar. The second starts to, you know, hit oxygen. Yeah. So the wine sort of already – so how long is this vermouth going to last? I mean basically how long do you have to infuse it before you basically have to start consuming it? I have no idea, man. It's an experiment. I, I mean, I did a little <laughs> bit of research, but as is my often my take with these things, I'm like, oh, let's just try, and if it doesn't work, I'll pour it down the drain, which is basically what Do you I have a recipe? Do you have like some instructions you can share? Um, you know, uh, I will tell you what. So we'll we'll include uh, we'll try and include a little basic recipe with uh, maybe with the show notes for this uh, podcast. I will I will well, give yeah, you my basic like, run. Write me an article or something. Like I'm, uh, I'm yeah, curious how to yeah. Make I made my own vermouth at home and didn't go blind, which is you know. Because you know so what far. I have like no, you know what I have no desire to do. I mean, look, we published the article, and I'm, I'm more power to the people that do this, but I have no desire to make my own tomorrow. Uh-huh. I'm just like God. This looks like it's so labor intensive. I was reading the article. And I was like, man, this is this is awesome. I'm glad to know how it's made. But you know, some of these people that are making their own amaros, and it's like an eight to twelve week process of like Ugh. infuse this, then strain, then infuse this, then strain, then add this, then stir, then infuse this, then strain. And it's like it just it's so much. I'm like, wow, I could just go and buy a really great bottle of amaro. <laughs> yep. Uh, I think that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I mean, this is how I feel. You know, I, I had like a brief period in my life where I was like, maybe I'm going to get into making beer because, you know, I, I was, when I was a little younger, I was more of a beer drinker. I think, you know, like you, that was one of my early sort of, uh, entrees into like the world of, you know, craft things. And I was like, maybe I'll try and make beer. But you know, the reality was even at that point, and certainly now there's so much great beer out there that I was, I could never really bring myself to think that whatever I would make would be anywhere near as good as what I could go buy, um, you know, at the breweries near me or, or in the store or whatever. And I just was like, is it, do I really want to put in this much effort to make something that I'm going to taste and be like, you know, this is pretty mediocre. I, I, I just, what's the point? I mean, I get, I, again, there's lots of great beer that's come, you know, it's made by people who started as home brewers. And, and obviously some people have a deep passion for it and that's awesome. But for me, it never grabbed me. Did you ever, like, is that something you ever dabbled in or thought about? Yeah, I I did homebrew. I liked it a lot. The problem was, so we were homebrewing in, you know, Josh, Vine Pear's co-founder's, like, apartment, like, four apartments ago or whatever. And it was, like, one of these, like, old lofts. It was actually, like, the weirdest yet coolest New York apartment ever. He lived in an old loft on the Bowery above a kitchen supply store that he shared a bathroom. Oh, no shit. I knew people who lived in that building, I think. Back when I lived, Maybe. back when I lived in New York, so he shared. It was it was one floor. He had this uh-huh. massive, massive apartment, but it didn't have a bathroom. Yep. His bathroom he shared with an artist and her two kids, <laughs> who <laughs> had the other half of the loft. But they were like super cool. Um, I mean, it was kind of weird, but I mean, I think the rent was dirt cheap. Um, and his, I mean, literally his his apartment, like just his room, was bigger than any apartment I've lived in in New York. Um, I mean, you had to dodge like uh, broken floorboards, but it was a super cool apartment. And we used to brew there because there was just so much space. And uh, and that was cool. And then when he moved, he didn't have space in his next apartment f- for all of our home brewing equipment. And Naomi was like, you're not bringing that to our apartment. <laughs> uh, and so then it just – it stopped. It was really fun though. I mean I, I did really enjoy it. I just think it's hard to be a home. I mean look, I, I'm sure there are people that listen to the podcast that will disagree with me. But I do think unless you live in a place where you have extra space, you have a basement or whatever, it was just hard for me to find the space to brew. And New York City kitchens are really tiny and um, yeah. we didn't have the closet space to hold the bottles. And then you know, Naomi was like – we twice when we home brewed, we had the accident where the – you know 
know, there was the overflow effect. Uh-oh. You know, the yeah. fermentation just got so aggressive that it blew off open either some bottles or it blew open the, um, you know, the glass carboy. And so now he's like, look, that's just not happening in our apartment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not dealing with that. So, but it was cool. I mean, I, I liked it. But then, yeah, again, I was like, a lot of these beers that I'm brewing, I'm just sort of like mimicking beers I like to drink, and I would just rather buy those beers I like to drink. For sure, it was I cool, feel like though. maybe it's really interesting to learn how to make alcohol. I guess, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's actually the, you know probably the biggest value in doing it for a lot of people is you do really learn something about how you know how challenging it is to. It's not hard to ferment things because you know you can ferment anything if you just leave, leave it alone. But to to ferment something and have it taste the way you want it to is I think very very difficult, and it's definitely an instructive um, process. I also think maybe you know I know uh, you're in the middle of the search for a new vine pair office, but I feel like maybe the new office in addition to a podcast studio could have a little uh, home brewing space if you're just actually uh, talking about that. I think I think Cat would love that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that yeah, would it'd be, like, be really cool. She could uh, you know you could have a little like cats uh, you know a little cat 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 lab. Yeah, something like that. That would be fun. We've talked about it. So anyways, let's jump into this, today's subject because uh, I know we have, a, we have a lot to do. We have a lot to get to. We have a lot to get oh. to. Um, today's, today's subject is a, a bit trickier to talk about um, just because there's a lot of feelings, very intense feelings. I'm going to try not to be super negative. Um, but there's a lot of intense feelings about this person in the wine world. A lot of people blame this person for um, you know, either making wine – more well-known towards Americans or maybe ruining wine, however you want to look at it. Um, the person's Robert Parker. And the reason we want to talk about Robert Parker today is he officially announced his retirement. So while he sold The Wine Advocate a while ago to actually a, a Chinese uh, publisher, um, he has still been involved as a critic and stuff. Uh, I think mostly, correct me if I'm wrong, but still was still focusing, I, I think, on like on Bordeaux and Napa, right? I think even um, just Bordeaux, really. To the or maybe end. just Bordeaux, yeah. But he's he's gone. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people in the wine world are like, good. Uh, it was time for him to go. I think there's others that follow him pretty, you know, religiously who, you know, think, well, that's kind of a shame because he was, he was so influential. Um, I mean, I think a lot of th- – like one thing people don't – a lot of people may not know about Rob Parker is he didn't start out as a uh, – as a wine critic, he started out as a lawyer who basically was living in Maryland and uh, created a newsletter where he, you know, rated wine for his friends, um, and that was sort of like the beginning of his career. And then what kind of gave him his notoriety is, you know, he picked a few vintages of Bordeaux early on that he said were going to be amazing that a lot of other critics didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I guess, was right. Uh, and others were wrong, and that kind of shot his star up. You know, right place, right time, right pick, right time. And I'm, I, people maybe might say on the podcast, "Oh, you're really oversimplifying." You know, what made him uh, really important? But um, that's you know, I think that's the best way you can simply say how he gained his notoriety. And then he's been a real behemoth in the world of wine since then. Um, yeah. And so I guess like, you know, before we really get into the nitty gritty of him, I was just kind of curious, you know, for both of us to add, like just give our perspectives on him. Um, so, you know, Zach, what do you think of Parker? Well, you know, I think it's interesting that for uh, part of the reason I was really interested in talking about this was that I think for both you and I being, you know, in our mid thirties, one of the things about Parker is, you know, he was already, uh, you know, hugely influential. His, In fact, you know, his influence was maybe arguably starting to wane by the time that we were 
coming onto the wine scene. You know, he he had spawned at that point a number of, you know, either imitators or just, you know, critics who had worked for him who had left to do their own thing. You know, the 100-point scale that he created had been, you know, spread far and wide. And so, you know, w- w- not that the style of wine that he championed or seemed to champion had necessarily gone out of style. It still hasn't in a lot of cases. But, but that, you know, his sort of he had already he was already a, you know very firmly fixed as this incredibly influential figure and so you and i didn't really live at least in a professional sense through this period of time where he was changing wine you know he had already changed wine and so you know we came around at a time when you know what was happening in the world of wine i think you know the biggest movement or movements were in some way or another reactionary to to what parker and and other people but but really you know he if not uh, you know, totally caused, at least was the face of, and I think, you know, not, um, you know, correctly. And I don't think he necessarily pushed back too much on the idea that he was the most influential wine critic and writer of, you know, certainly of his era. And, and I, and so I think, you know, I came to wine on, a, especially on a restaurant side in this world where, you know, the wines and the regions and the varieties that Parker had, you know, championed and made were entrenched. And whether that was, you know, Napa Cab, Argentinian Malbec, a certain style of of Rhone Syrah, things like that, you know, were um, were there. They were, and they had already achieved their hundred points and their reputation. And there was a whole generation or two of drinkers whose idea of what made great wine was how many points did it get. And and I mean, the brilliance and madness in, of that very very simple approach to to wine is I think, you know, is is going to be Parker's lasting legacy more than stylistically, I think, because I think styles come and go. But the idea that a wine can be reduced to a numeric value was, I mean, critics had always been giving wines numbers, but those numbers had not really been used by the public as far as I know. I mean, again, this is before my time, but this is based on what I've read and, and learned from talking to people who have been in the wine industry for a long time and consumers who've been in the industry, who've been drinking wine for a long time, that Parker creating this 100-point scale, which was super recognizable to a particularly American audience who who understood that, you know, the sort of the gradation between, you know, what is an 80, an 85, a 90, a 95, 100, et cetera, and the idea that, you know, 100 being this sort of magic, you know, round, glorious number, it's got a fucking emoji for God's sake, was like going to be the greatest wine you've ever had. And and people really truly used those scores as a replacement for their own sense of taste. And and I don't even that's not that's not critical. I mean, I, I don't really mean it that way. I don't mean to say those people were bad wine drinkers. I don't mean to say that Robert Parker did something wrong per se, but the idea that you would just seek out the highest scoring wine you could at whatever price you could afford as the way to buy your wine was a completely novel concept and it completely revolutionary revolutionized the wine industry. It spawned for one thing, like I said, like 30 other reviewers who all were eager to give out their 93s and everything. And it, it changed the way that wine is marketed, the way that wineries think about promoting their own wines and even making their own wines. And, and so it's it, he, him leaving, even if it's not, you know, an, even if he didn't just, you know, even if he wasn't super active in the last few years, you know, his, the end of his career, I don't think will end the influence of that, in, that system in particular. So what I think is interesting about this is, you know, he did create the 100-point scale, but the question becomes, did he create it and did people popularize it and make it bigger than him or was he the one that made it big? Because I think the biggest thing that happens with Parker is that everyone puts all the weight on 
on this change in wine and the idea that the 100-point scale is the end-all, be-all and that that's how we rate wine on him. They say it's his fault and that he was the critic that basically created you know, the style of wine we were all looking for. But what's interesting is that if you look – you know, while you've been talking, Zach, I've been spending a lot of time on Wikipedia. And if you look at when Parker you – know, not that I don't love your voice, but uh, you know, I knew you were going to take it that way and I wanted to have my research on point. So if you look at what was happening at the same time, there were two other magazines like that really were basically either copying him or coming up at the exact same time as him. So you had you know, Parker basically you know, starting his, his whole thing in like around 1976. He didn't become a big name until he called the 1982 vintage of Bordeaux. Right. So at the same time, he was waiting, rating wine in the way that he was rating it. But at the same time, in 1976, Wine Spectator was purchased. I mean, sorry, was started. And then 1979, Marvin Schenken bought it. And in 1981, they, they introduced their own version of ratings and restaurant awards and stuff like that. And Schenken had his own critics. They were also all maybe copying Parker, but also on the 100 point scale. Right, so then he starts, and then in 1988, Wine Enthusiast launches their own magazine, also on the hundred point scale. So you had a bunch of these, you know, fuddy duddy magazines. Now we think of, but you know, at the time, people that looked revolutionary who were all rating wine pretty similarly with similar palettes on a similar number scale. So I don't mean that to say that you know it. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think sometimes we put all our weight in hating what happened to wine on just Parker sure, or saying that, you know, it's, it's all Parker's fault. And this was a conversation Tim and I had had before. If I don't give Tim some credit for this, I'll feel really bad. You know, Tim and I had had before I, I came into the booth to record this. Um, but that, you know, we are, I think too hard on Parker and not hard enough on, you know, the entire industry who sort of moved that way. And maybe just on the, on, on the tastes in general of that generation. Um, that, you know, there was just, you know, there was suckling who was at spectator. There was a lot of these other people that were reviewing wines for these other publications that were like, huh, this hundred point scale is a really basic way to review wine, but yet it's also a nuanced way because now I don't, you know, I can't break down. I don't, I don't like the whole system of, you know, decanter and stuff like that. It's on a 20 point scale. I don't like the Jancis Robinson's on a 20 point scale. Um, so I'm just going to go 100 because then I can basically say, hmm, I think this is a wine that is good but not amazing. So I'm going to give it a 92, but this other one I'm going to give it a 93. Yeah, new, but what they didn't realize is they were actually confusing people even more yeah. because what is the difference between a, a wine that gets a 92 and a wine that gets a 93? Like I can't no tell, one you. Can tell you. No, no one can tell you. No one can. No one can tell you. And I think and, – and basically also what they started creating, unfortunately, was because they were on a 100-point scale, once you got below a 90, your wine was basically considered garbage. So yeah. they basically made this rush towards the 90 where basically yeah. almost every wine gets a 90 or above. So yeah. you know, at that point in time, also like then what's, what's the use? The consumer doesn't know. The consumer thinks that well, over a 90 must be good. Um, and it just became very confusing. I think the other thing though that he did besides the point system that, that I think his palate's really going to become – you know, known for in terms of the industry and, and the impact that he had, which was, you know, not great, was that he, you know, had a fondness for what he called hedonistic wines. And mm -hmm. these were wines that were overripe, massively fruity, massively powerful, massively oaked. And he basically, you know, said that that's what good wine was. 
And he caused an entire generation of winemakers to start making wine in his style. And he influenced a generation of critics that all copied that style. Yeah. So he caused a ton of critics who he mentored. And then, you know, and again, let's remember this guy wasn't a wine guy. This guy was a lawyer who liked a certain style of wine. But he was influential enough that he convinced a bunch of people that that's the way that wine should be made. And he changed entire wine regions in terms of how they made wine. You had Barolo producers that said, you know what? We're going to abandon the large fooders that we usually age wine in, these massive you know, Hungarian oak barrels that hold thousands of you – know, hundreds of thousands of liters of wine. And we're going to instead go to small oak barriques because yeah. we're gonna, we, want, we want heavier oak influence in our wine. And I think he kind of like put Severolo back a decade at least. And then, but I think, you know, what we have to sort of remember is that it wasn't just him. He then had these other critics from these other publications that I mentioned a second ago who piled on and said, yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. That's right. We agree. And it was just this whole movement that maybe he influenced, but that they all sort of piled on to really influence to say, this is how wine was. And I think, also, what you have to remember is economically, he was at the right place at the right time, right? Winemakers were searching for a new new markets. And, you know, it had only been – we're talking late 70s, early 80s. So what is that? It's only really 40, 50 years post-prohibition. And Americans are finally making a lot of money. We're coming into, you know, this is the Reagan years of excess and, you know, massive wealth on Wall Street. And basically – these producers, especially these high-end producers, are looking to sell a ton of wine to the American market because they're seeing this as, you know, this is the China gold rush of now. Yep. And so they're seeing this as a massive opportunity to make wine. And so they're just basically saying, huh, here are these few critics that are influencing an entire population because this population is so young in its wine culture that it doesn't it, – it's saying like, look, make this easy for me. These critics are making it easy for them. And so they're saying, cool, 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 cool easier to just listen to them than, you know, worry about not thinking I know wine. So they give this a, a point score above 90, I'll buy it. And the producer said, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes to get that point score above 90. And there you have Parker's influence. Yeah. And, and I mean, I will say a couple quick things in, in addition to that. So one is, you know, it's funny. I, I, I don't think I actually made this connection until you were talking about it, but it makes perfect sense to me. Robert Parker was a lawyer and he liked wines that lawyers for as long as I can imagine have liked. You know, what do lawyers do a lot of, you know, they go to a lot of like steakhouses and stuff like that. That's that's the that's the sort of, you know, milieu of a lawyer. And so, of course, they like big, bold red wines, lots of intense flavors. You know, it, it doesn't surprise me that those were his tastes. And and it, and there's lots of people that share them and would have shared them, you know, whether he had never existed or not. I think the way he came to dominate the the landscape and and those wines came to dominate the landscape is absolutely an unfortunate thing. Although I do want to say that, like, there was a positive effect to it, and, and it's easy to get caught up in the negatives. I think one of the positives um, from what I've you know heard from talking to people who've been in the industry longer is there was a, a, a real unfortunate trend in especially certain uh, you know European regions, but even in in some um, uh, New World regions of sort of really um, sort of thin, underripe wines that were passed off as good because they came from prestigious appellations, but were really you know 
either overyielded or just generally were not very good. And because no one knew anything better than, well, this seems to be a prestigious appellation, there wasn't a way to get more information about the wine than to look at the name of the domain or the chateau or whatever on the label. There was a lot of that, or at least some of that, that was passed off. And and the the sort of growth of of wine criticism and scores did, to some extent, weed some of that out or force some of those producers to, to improve the quality of their wine. Now, obviously, I think, as you said, a lot of them in certain places went way past uh, you know, a good balance point and kind of tipped far farther, you know, much further over into hedonism, um, you know, certainly at, if not Parker's behest, then certainly, um, you know, he wasn't pushing back against that in any way. And, um, and I think that, you know, the other thing I would say about this is that you're, you're very right that, that some, a lot of this was part of a broader cultural movement and also just was championed by people throughout the industry. It was not like yeah. Parker came in and like twisted a bunch of arms in all these regions. You know, there were a lot of people in the winemaking industry who wanted to believe that it was as simple as, you know, here's the formula, right? We get our grapes to this degree of ripeness, this level of alcohol. We use this kind of, you know, this amount of new oak from these cooperages that Parker's known to like, and we know we'll get a good score. And then we know that there'll be an audience for those wines. And restaurants and wine shops and everyone else, they like the idea that, hey, you know, I could put, if I have a retail shop and I can say this wine got 97 points, I don't have to explain to someone why the wine is $150. They're just going to know. They're going to say, oh, great, 97 points. That's almost all the points you can have. I'm going to buy that wine. And and no one has to think and no one has to work. And it's just a formula. And, and the formula, you know, functioned really well for a long time. I think it wasn't until basically a new generation came along, people started to say, well, you know, maybe do we really just want all the wine in the world to kind of taste the same or, or made from the same few varieties or, exactly. or to be sort of indistinguishable as far as where it comes from? And, and yeah, there's a place for those wines. And look, the big, powerful, hedonistic wines have always been a part of wine uh, when they've been possible and will continue to be a part of wine because there will always be an audience for them. And, you know, I'll be totally honest, I like some of those wines sometimes. I can be a hedonist. <laughs> it's fun. I don't only just want to drink really, really austere, hard, tart, unapproachable wines, which, you know, or have their own, you know, champions now and their own vogue and, and, and to me are, you know, their own mistake in terms of going too far out from what is a good center place for wine. But that's a different podcast that we've already done and we'll probably do again. Well, you know, um, no, go ahead. No, well, you know, I, you make me think of something. It's, it's a point that I've made before. I'm probably made on this podcast before, but I think it's why Parker's style blew up to a large extent for a lot of people is that, you know, you have to think about the American wine culture and Keith talks about this a lot too, as a, you know, a, a developmental steps, right? So, you know, in your, in your elementary years, you're kind of like, you're, you care a lot about scores. In elementary, middle school, you want to get good grades. And then like in your teens, in your early 20s, you start to rebel, which is I think the stage of our wine culture that we're in now. And then, you know, hopefully you get wiser and you sort of just realize that as you get older, like who cares if you're a cool kid or not? You just like what you like and it doesn't matter. And I'm hoping we're going to get there pretty soon because right now like this like rebellious 20s of, you know, Psalms thinking that they know everything and that they're the cool kids. And, you know, if you don't like natural wine, you're stupid is kind of annoying. Even You know what I mean? For all of us, even though I yeah. like natural wine um, to some extent. But I think what you have to think about when you're in that level of development or if you're just a new person to wine, is that a lot of these big hedonistic, hedonistic wines, they they taste the way you expect them to taste based on what they cost, if that makes sense. Yeah. So when we talk about – we definitely talked about this on the podcast. But when we talk about you know expensive bourbon, right? Expensive bourbon tastes the way you think expensive bourbon should taste. 
as just yeah. uh, making that connection in your mind, right? It's really lush. It's smooth. It, there's not that alcoholic bite. It has that rounded caramel and toffee, and it just tastes the way that expensive bourbon should taste. That's why I think Johnny Walker Blue has been so successful, right? Like it tastes the way an expensive blended scotch should taste. And I think a lot of these wines that he wound up championing tasted the way you expected expensive wine to taste. There was that roundness. There, there was that, that word that you hear a lot that Psalms don't use but consumers do, which was it was smooth. You know, it was just lush and big and bold and tasted expensive. You know, I think about expensive shirts. Expensive shirts feel the way I expect expensive shirts to feel when I wear, you know, on the rare occasion that I've ever owned an expensive button down. It feels the way it should feel. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, <laughs> generally speaking, yeah. Well, the, the shirt you wore when you got married, maybe, you know, like, yeah. or, or, or the suit that you oh, wore I when you got married. I wasn't wearing a shirt, Adam. Oh well, gosh! I'm just kidding. Good luck to your wife. Um, <laughs> we got married in the we got married in the woods. Thank you. Yeah, just and probably is like hippie. So, so the hemp you wore, whatever. Like, <laughs> think about that. We weren't stuff, wearing though. the hemp, buddy. <laughs> no, this is all very much a joke. My wife and I got married in a synagogue. I was wearing a very nice shirt. But yeah, so like, you think about shoes, you think about watches, like this uh-huh. this idea, and then and going back to the connection you made of lawyers, you know, and if you're in that kind of world and you're used to you're making good money and you're buying some of these other fancy things, also coming from Europe, that feel and look and work in the way that you think they should, based on the way they cost, and based, sorry, based on what they cost, then you make that connection back to a wine and you say, okay, well, there's these austere wines that. I don't really understand. I don't get why they're expensive, you know, or these high acid wines that I don't really understand in the same way. But then here's this big Bordeaux or this, you know, luscious Napa Cab or this Amarone that I really just, I can make that immediate quality to price connection. I get it. And I just think that that was it. And now we're evolving from it. And that's good because this is what's supposed to happen. You know, this is what's supposed to happen. And that's why, you know, with our reviews that we've launched, we've changed how we review. We've changed, you know, we've abandoned the number system. We look at occasion instead of just, you know, one, one score to rule them all. But, you know, you, this is what's going to happen, you know, and it's not, and I guess like I'm coming to terms with it as we talk, this is like therapy. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> you're well you're he welcome. was he was he was the critic for that time he was that critic for yeah. that developmental time in our wine culture and so to hate him is kind of stupid we we should graduate from him you know we we should all move on which i think is hopefully where we're going but we shouldn't hate him there's no point in hating him because at that yeah. time in the way that we were developing as wine drinkers he was just developing with us in a, in a way to make us say cool this makes sense this is the kind of wine i think I should buy based on what I want to pay and the way that it should taste based on what I'm paying. Done. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other part is, you know, the, the hatred, I think, is one of those things where, you know, some part of it from some quarters is just, you know, jealousy of, you know, jealousy towards his success and his prominence. And, you know, there, there's always going to be people who look at someone who achieves a level of, of that, that level of success and are going to find things to criticize. And, you know, that's, it comes to the territory. I don't, I don't feel bad for Robert Parker that, that people take shots at him because, you know, he's had quite a life, made quite a living, and, and I don't feel bad for him in the slightest. But I agree with you very much that, that he was, 
he drove to some extent the the wine culture in this country, but he also very much was just a voice for what was already going on. And yeah. in that, and to confuse those things, you know, yeah, he was the guy who became prominent in it. But you know, it's like uh, this is going to be a really weird analogy, and and maybe it's going to anger people who are Robert Parker fans. But like to me, at this point, like. Hating Robert Parker is like a little bit like hating like I don't know InSync or something like that. Like oh my did god, I like just when say I was the exact same fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are like the exact same age, but like when I was a certain age, I, I mean, I was definitely like you know those guys suck. Like this is terrible. Um, and I'm still not like a fan, but I'm like I get it. Like for a lot of people, that was stuff that was music that was important to them, that resonated with them, that part of being at that age in your life was like being able to say, you know, to to know that millions upon millions of people in the US and, and globally, we're also like gonna lose their shit whenever, you know, a new Backstreet Boys or Sync album came out. And like Don't forget that's, 98 it, degrees. Uh, I had until just now. Thank <laughs> thank you, I guess. There was a lot of them. Yeah, there were a lot. There was definitely a there was definitely a boy band uh era, as there always is every decade or so. And so to you know to hate them is like it's like what why? What like where why they were they had their time. Their time is mostly past. Obviously some of them have remained relevant in certain ways. Others have not. But like great like people enjoyed it and I, I don't find any value in like you know in being you know super critical and i'm less of a music person than you so you know you might disagree but but you know with parker same thing like some of those wines are now like you know they they, they are clearly like time capsule wines and that they're like you taste them you know some of the wines that he really championed that are still being made in that same style and i'm just like man this wine is like this is for like my grandparents almost or like this is for like my like you know this is like a, a two-generation old wine like great i guess but like no one I know my age or even, you know, and younger wants to drink this, no. especially not for what it costs. But even, but even then, like, and those wines will either, those wineries will either go out, you know, they'll, you know, cling to their shrinking consumer base or they'll change their style or they'll go out of business or whatever. And, and like, that's, yeah, it's the natural evolution. It's not, it's not something to be, to be hated. It's just something to be recognized, to be sort of cataloged. And then, you know, like, like you said with, with Vine Pair, to learn from and, and adapt from. And, and that's, you know, that's all we can ask, I think. I agree. I mean, like, look, like, you know, maybe we'll still get other styles of boy band. Like, we've gotten BTS now from South Korea that were, you know, a lot of people are obsessed with, a Korean boy band. I have uh, no idea who that is. Are you serious? They, that played, is, they but... played Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live and people went nuts like two weeks ago. Wait, people still watch Saturday Night Live? Man, I'm really – Yeah, it's called, they're called BTS. People are obsessed with this band. Um, but they're from Korea and they're a boy band. Um, so maybe yeah. we'll get, you know, maybe we'll get some Parker style wines to other places, but I think that the wine, you know, the wine that sort of came out with him will evolve or yeah, it'll, it'll disappear, um, in a lot of ways. Uh, that's just the natural evolution. Like, you know, I don't think that the number one wines will stay number one forever. I just don't. I mean, people can disagree with me if they want, besides like the really strong brands and basically then they're going to be owned by some of the, you know, people are going to hate this, but some of the biggest corporations, right? Like fine, Ecamm will never go away because it's owned by LVMH and they're going to continue to invest tons of money into keeping it a very strong brand, you know, or yeah. Dom Perignon will never really disappear because it's owned by LVMH. Um, but some of these other brands, maybe they will, you know, maybe they'll sort of, they'll wane as, as that Parker generation goes away. And, and if they don't change their style, people are looking for new wines. I completely think that, um, but, you know, I think it's also natural for us to not like the person that we're rebelling against, right? So as now, people in our 20s, we just don't – you know, I don't care for him as a critic because I'm rebelling against him. And that's fine. Um, you know, I just – I hope, again, like I said, we get to a place in wine culture where, like, we realize that there's no one style, 
right? There's yeah. no right or wrong. If someone wants to like the styles of wine he likes, fine. You know, if someone wants to like, you know, you know, wine that has what some might be considered faults, fine. You know, like why do we have to say there's one right or wrong way when it comes to wine that's supposed to at the end of the day give us pleasure? Yeah. Well, and I think the answer is, you know, you don't, hopefully. And and hopefully you you use a little more critical thinking and, and your own trust your own senses a little more than just looking at a, a you know, a numerical score and, and you know, and if you do that there, there will be, whether it's VinePair or, or others, you know, who write about and even, you know, review wine, people who, who do kind of bring a level of nuance and um, complexity to the the act of, you know, reviewing wine uh, that I think befits our evolving, more nuanced and, and complex wine culture. You know, it's not as simple now, so our reviews shouldn't be as simple. Totally. Well, Zach, this is a very interesting conversation. I'd love to hear what other people who listen to the podcast think. What do you think of Parker? Uh, how, do you think he's been as influential as most people think? Uh, do you think – do you agree with me uh, and Zach that sort of while he's been influential, there were other publications who were also as influential? And do you think we will all see his, influential, his influence sort of wane? I, I'd love to hear what you think as a listener. So email us at podcasts at vinepair.com. Um, maybe we'll even read what some of you happen to write in uh, in a few weeks. Uh, Zach? This has been a really interesting one, kind of a hard one, almost a therapy session as we get over, uh, you know, someone who's, who's been, you know, at least a dominant name in the industry for, for a very long time. And I look forward to uh, you know, our next topic next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.